Well, let's join in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. It gives us light, it gives us truth, it gives us direction, it gives us hope. As we again come to it this morning, we pray that you would lead us to see Jesus in this text, that we might behold him and his cross and his salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to a new chapter of 1 Kings. It's a rather long one if you look at it in total, but one I believe that will bring us some encouragement, blessing and challenge as we look at it together. You might remember that the focus in these last few chapters of the book has been upon the temple. We've seen something of the amazing architectural accomplishment that it was. We've seen something of the function that it was to serve in the plan of God for the salvation of his people. We've also seen something in relation to the furnishings in the temple that all tell their own story. Each part a testimony to all that God has done for his people. And yet most of all, over all of this, we've seen how the temple points us forward to see Jesus, who was to come, the one who was to fill, fulfil all that this temple looked forward to, and the one in whom we find the fullness of God, the grace of God and the glory of God expressed that our hope might be in him. But having said all that, it would be foolish of us to focus so much on the temple and never think about the one who is to live in the temple. It would be like us marvelling at something like Buckingham Palace, but never once giving any recognition or any attention to the king who lives within its walls. It would be a tragedy of great proportions to see all the details of the temple, right down to its hand-carved stone, dressed, gold and cedar overlaid walls and its many amazing items of bronze and gold, but miss entirely the God whose presence was made manifest in its walls. And I say that with a careful choice of words. God's presence was made manifest in the temple. It would be wrong for me to say that God took up residence in the temple because he is omnipresent, he is everywhere and no temple can be a house for him. No building could ever contain him, no matter how big, no matter how beautiful. But God manifested his presence in the temple. He lowered himself, you could say. He reduced himself in size, if that were possible, to be found in this temple to show that he was pleased with what had been built and that was within his will and desire to come down and to live among his people and be found in that place. 
This temple was now complete except for one thing. One item that was missing that was added in our text this morning. The one that we've just passed over but yet of great significance. The Ark of the Covenant. No one needed to go and build it because it was already built. It was housed in the tabernacle from where it would be moved, as we read in the text today, into this grander and more glorious, new, more permanent building, this temple, from the tabernacle, that tent, to this wonderful temple. Verses 1 to 2 tell us that the day came for all of Israel, as all the elders and all the heads of the tribes and all the men were invited to a great feast in the seventh month, And given that the seventh month of the year had already annual feasts already, which reminded the people of living in tents, and how the Lord once dwelt in a tent and journeyed through the desert with them, this was a fitting time for the temple to be dedicated and show how that temporary tabernacle had now given way to this more permanent and glorious dwelling, this temple that Solomon had built. And so the chapter brings us face to face with more aspects of truth about the Lord who would inhabit this temple. And as we think more about these things, let's look beyond the structures, let's look beyond the building materials, let's look beyond the furnishings to let our focus fall upon the one who would be there in the temple. Noting three things as we do. First, let's think about the mercy of God in the temple in verses 1 to 9. Verse 3 tells us that all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then verse 6, the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the in a sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. Alongside of the action of picking up the, t- the ark from where it was and transporting it to its new home, verse 5 says that the death and the sacrifice of so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered also took place. This was not the Day of Atonement, which sacrifices would happen year after year, but Solomon certainly believed that this day ought to be a day of great celebration and worship of the Lord by sacrificing thousands and thousands of animals. After all, this was the day when all was done. This was the day when the temple would not only be a place to reflect the beauty and the glory of the Lord, but the day when God and his people were together again. And Solomon knew that for this to happen, well, sacrifice has to happen. Atonement has to be made. Blood has to be shed. Now in these last few studies in the chapters, we've heard about the furnishings of the temple, We've heard about the lampstands, the table, the golden table of the showbread, the basins and bowls and various other items used by the priests. 
But none of these are as important as the Ark of the Covenant. It was the only item in the innermost room of the Holy of Holies, this throne room of God where the Ark was now to be placed. And while the text tells us of what was inside the Ark, the jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of stone upon were written the Ten Commandments of God, for a few moments let's consider what was on top of the Ark. And let's think about its lid or its cover which has a special name in the scriptures. It's called the mercy seat. Now this name is not, as it might first suggest, it was not a place for the high priest to sit down when he was tired. This was not a mercy seat for him to rest. In fact, there was no place for the high priest to sit because his work was never done. But like the weekly washing, once done, it would have to be done again. In this case, once a year, year after year, decade after decade, until the day came when the all-sufficient sacrifice would be made, that sacrifice where the perfect priest would offer the perfect sacrifice that would be sufficient for all of God's people's sins, past, present and future. Now whether or not on this day the mercy seat was used, on this day of celebration when so many sheep and bulls and goats were sacrificed is not my point. The point is that the temple, like the tabernacle, now had that most vital piece of furniture by which God and sinners could once again be brought together, be reconciled. We'll come back to the mercy seat later. Second, let's note the glory of God in the temple. The mercy of God in the temple, the glory of God in the temple. Verse 10 to 12 tell us that the priest came out of the holy place and a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What's going on? What's this cloud? What's this fog that suddenly fills the building? Well, there are a couple of things to note. The cloud indicates the presence of God. On Mount Sinai, there God appeared in a cloud. During their desert journey through the wilderness, for every day for 40 years, God appeared in a cloud. When they finished building the tabernacle in Exodus 40, God filled the place and appeared in a cloud. So this next appearance marks continuity of this pattern so that there had been some outward changes to the building. Nothing had changed, really. But the cloud also speaks to us of a paradox that God reveals himself while hiding himself. Clouds block our sight of the sun. Clouds obscure an image. God used cloud as much to reveal his presence 
as to conceal his presence. And why is that? Because no human eyes can look on God and live. He is holy and we are not. That's why Isaiah, when he beheld the glory of the Lord, said, Woe is me, for I must die. I have seen the glory of the Lord. The pictures we have of angels covering their eyes because the brightness of God's glory is another way this fact is taught. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 6 of him who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And then also remember that as God cannot be represented by an image, how apt a non-image like a cloud is. The New Testament tells us too that the disciples were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and a cloud came down and enveloped them and God spoke from that cloud. Think also when Jesus ascended into heaven that a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. These things are there as a pattern in the scriptures to remind us that God does things consistently. It's not just suggested every cloud is the presence of God. No, not at all. But this does remind us that we can only know God if he reveals himself to us. When all who were gathered in the temple looked, what did they see? They see a cloud. Did they see the presence of God? Well, not God himself. Because no one can look upon God and live. So they saw this cloud something in the way, something protecting their sight from the reality of the living God, something that has to be removed if we are to know him. And that's how it is. Unless he takes the cloud away, we can't know him at all. Unless he reveals himself, then we're just guessing. And because no religion on earth can find and explain who God is, then God has taken the steps to reveal himself to us and has done so in Christ. The mercy of God in the temple, the glory of God in the temple. Third, we learn about the praise of God in the temple. Here we think about the words that Solomon spoke in verses 15 to 21. And they form a preface to his prayer that we're going to look at next week that are full of the theme of the faithfulness of God. Next week, from verses 22 on, we'll look at this prayer of Solomon's in more detail. But for now, let's reflect upon how and why Solomon stood up and praised God as he did. And you'll see that all that he praised God for orbits around two things. The promises of God and his faithfulness towards those promises. We hear him say in verse 15, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his mouth to David my father. The background to all that Solomon says is that vital chapter of 2 Samuel 7 where David said to God, God, I have this earnest desire to build you a house. And God said to David, no, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. And then went on to promise such great promises as he did, that a son of his would rule after him. 
and that his kingdom would be forever. And now here was Solomon, that son, who had done with his own hands what his father had wanted to do but was forbidden by God. And God had just so graciously, wonderfully and gloriously filled that very temple with his glorious promise, presence, confirming all of his promises that they had been kept. And so the next part of the journey, the next part of the journey they would also be. And so we say with confidence that our God is a promise-keeping God. Compare this, compare him with the empty promises of the other gods that people serve today. So many people put their trust in money for security. So many serve pleasure, the God of pleasure. We make other people our, our idols to give us identity and meaning. Everywhere we turn, we see empty promises from the idols of our culture. They boast of promising much, but they are broken and they hold no water. But our God is faithful. He keeps his promises. If you belong to him, then all your times are in the Father's hand. All your times are by his appointment. In his hands, even our trials are reasons for rejoicing because in his hands they bring about character growth and more. Yes, these days appear to be dark days, don't they? And it appears that darkness clearly has the upper hand. But these do not nullify God's promises or his purposes. Maybe you need to hear that today and believe that today. Cast yourself upon the faithfulness of God who promises and does not lie. And maybe we might all need to bring this to mind that the promises of God are springboard for praise, especially as we come to the Lord's table. Look at the promises of God that are fulfilled here, that God would be with us, that God would save his people. So we taste and see again that the Lord is good and never fails his own. Well, as I said at the outset of my message, we would be fools to think that the temple is all important at the expense of thinking about the one who came to inhabit the temple. So having spoken about its stones and walls, its furnishings and items, its pillars, its bronze, its gold, we can't forget the one who appeared in the temple as he did in that form of the cloud, filling every nook and cranny of that building, revealing something of his glory, so much so that the priests had to withdraw from the holy place and could no longer go about their duties. This was no ordinary event. This was no everyday of happening in the life of God's people. This was extraordinary. This is one of the greatest self-revelations by God of his presence that would have left no doubt in anyone's mind. From the king down, the reality of God's glory and presence. But as we think about that, we think about this question. 
And where is this glory today? And why is it evidenced before our eyes? Uh, Why no cloud filling this place or any other regular place of worship? Because of this, that the glory is now seen and nowhere else but in Jesus, his son. Here again, what John wrote in the first chapter of his gospel, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, and here John speaks about Jesus, he has made him known. See, in that cloud, we learn about God's glory, but we learn about our limitations. We need the cloud to be lifted if we are to enter the presence of God. And when the cloud is lifted, what do we see? We see the mercy cease. We see the way of approach to God through atonement made by sacrifice. But bring your gaze now away from the mercy seat of the ark to the mercy seat it pointed forward to of the cross. This morning we heard our call to worship and in our reading, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his word to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, get this, is the equivalent of the Hebrew word for mercy seat. This word is hard to say but so vital to know it tells us of the appeasing or the satisfying or the putting away of God's anger towards sin something that God he said had said he would do once sufficient payment was made and something that's here in this temple in the very seat atop the ark of the covenant sometimes you might hear that referred to as the mercy seat or the atonement seat. But the idea is the same. Once the priest took the blood and sprinkled it upon that seat, sin would be atoned for. And God's anger against sin would be propitiated. It would be put away. It would be satisfied so that we may say, to get back to the New Testament usage of this, that when Jesus died for us as a payment for our sins in response to God's plan, he satisfied the wrath of God for our sin. His blood was not magic, as if there was some powerful disinfectant, but rather it satisfied the requirements of the law that someone must die in order for forgiveness to be given. Sin is not forgiven unless someone pays its price. And if God put forward Jesus to be the sacrifice, to be the one, then this mercy seat in the temple points us forward to the day when in sheer grace God would put forward Jesus as the sacrifice. Paul tells us that in Romans 3. There is simply no other way for sinful people to come before him. Either we come through the shed blood of Christ 
responding with faith to his provision or we just simply don't come at all. After all, what was it that Jesus came to save us from? Your answer may be as we found out during our new members class and I won't ask them individually to answer this question. What did Jesus come to save us from? Or your answer might be Jesus came to save us from our sins. That would be right, but not quite. And you could answer Jesus came to save us from what our sins deserve. Now getting closer... But to say Jesus came to save us from God and you've got it in a nutshell. Does that blow your mind? Jesus came to save us from God, from his wrath. He saves us from that. See, there's more going on than you might expect, but it's all part of God's design. We're not to think that the killing of animals outside in the courtyard would spoil the lovely new bronze lavers. Nor do we think that the bringing of their blood inside would tarnish the gold furnishings and ruin them forever. No, this was the arrangement that God has directed and the reason the temple existed, not for its beauty, not for as a thing to behold, that mercy might flow to God's people and their sins be forgiven and God glorified in the process through mercy being given to sinners like you and me. So we have this connection. Think on this connection. The mercy seat in the temple, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is our mercy seat. We hear again in the scripture that in Jesus we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. This is the God Solomon knew. And his mercy is here on display. That which he spares us from which we do deserve or because he is a God who longs for his people to be with them and him with them. And he's done this for you. He's done this for me. In the sending of his son to save us from himself and to bring us to himself. Is there praise in your heart like Solomon had for God who did this? He is more than worthy of all praise and all worship for all that he has done and all he will yet do, including sharing not just his glory but himself with you, his people for all eternity. Let's pray. Now God of grace and glory,
we humble ourselves this morning as we hear afresh the gospel in the Old Testament, which is the same gospel in the New, that Christ died in our place. We thank you for all that the mercy seat looked forward to the day when you would put forward the sacrifice and in putting forward that sacrifice it would be your own son given freely at your command and he was delighted pleased to obey you to do everything you told him to do because he found it a great joy to serve you even if it meant death on a cross for him. What can we say to you for all of this? How can we repay you for all your goodness to us? We can only do as the psalm writer said, Take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord and fulfil our vows in the presence of all his people. So we ask with trembling hearts that we would all know the wonder of the salvation that comes through the cross of Christ where sin is put away, where we are safe because we are found in him, in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.